Recovery Elevator, episode 80. Nothing tragic happened, but it was enough where the shame, the guilt, the wanting to commit suicide the next day, and I was just ready to be done with it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 23 months and 10 days. On today's podcast, we've got Low. Her last drink was nearly eight months ago. She's 32 and from Minnesota. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. As I've mentioned before in the podcast, alcoholism does not segregate. It does not select a certain ethnicity, a certain type of person, a person with a certain education level, male or female. It is an equal opportunity all around ass kicker. In today's podcast, I'm going to talk about some celebrities who are alcoholics. Now, I'm not one to pull the inquire off the shelf while checking out in the grocery store, but it's actually pretty cool to look at the list of celebrity actors and actresses. Now, one might think, including myself, that becoming an alcoholic or drug addict in Hollywood is a righteous of passage, something like you need to earn your stripes before they're going to mold your hand in concrete on Hollywood Boulevard. Now, there's a whole different set of list of actors that became alcoholics and didn't recover. You don't really hear about them because a lot of them just fade away, never to be seen again on the big screen. But I want to keep this podcast positive and upbeat, so let's talk about the ones who recovered. And if you'd like to see a more comprehensive list, go to recoveryelevator.com, show notes, episode 80. There you'll also find a link to where I got this information from, celebritygossip.com. Go figure. First off, I'd like to talk to you about Stephen King. This is a guy who had a dream and led a ton of civil rights walks. Wait, different King. Stephen King was the world-famous horror writing phenomenon and the visionary behind a ton of great books, and some of those books have been converted into movies. After a family intervention in 1987, King realized that he needed to make a change and has remained sober ever since. If you've read some of his novels, you will realize that a lot of the protagonists are alcoholics and suffer from the same affliction that Stephen did, most famously Jack Torrance from the film version of The Shining. Speaking of The Shining, my brother just got married on June 5th this year, and he had his rehearsal dinner in the hotel where The Shining was filmed. Fun fact there, huh? Next on the list is Ben Affleck, and currently the man behind the Batman mask. Ben entered rehab in 2001 for alcoholism. Affleck has for the most part stayed sober since. He was spotted at the 2011 Sundance Film Festival with a drink, but according to Ben Affleck, he doesn't drink. Since making the decision to quit drinking, Ben has seen some success in his career. In fact, he won an Oscar for Best Film in Argo. Next up on this list is Michael J. Fox, a.k.a. Marty McFly. Michael J. Fox had a problem with alcohol before diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. When he got that diagnosis, he said he had a lot of reasons to drink. He also knows that drinking will not make his condition with Parkinson's disease any better. Next up, we have Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife in True Lies, Jamie Lee Curtis. Her addiction with alcohol ramped up after she had received a cosmetic procedure and started abusing the routine painkillers as she was given after the procedure. 
Next up is Miss Diana Ross. Diana could easily be argued as the female entertainer of the century. Beyonce, step aside. Diana Ross is one of the most famous faces in the world today. Diana entered Promises Rehab Center in 2002. She was arrested a few months later for a DUI and then had a successful stay at the Canyon Ranch and helped overcome her addiction to alcohol. Miss Ross has a net worth of over $250 million as of 2013. I think without alcohol, she's doing just fine. When I think of famous African-American women in this world, Diana Ross and Oprah Winfrey are at the top of that list. Next up on the list is William Wallace, a.k.a. Mel Gibson. In 2006, Gibson was arrested on a DUI and then spiraled downhill to have many very public yet behind closed door problems that we all knew about that were supposed to be secretive at the same time. Now, Mel Gibson is currently one of the most controversial actors and filmmakers in America, if not the world, and I imagine if he were still drinking, he would be even more controversial. Next up on this list is Johnny Depp. Though the public doesn't really know the extent of his alcoholism, Johnny Depp has openly admitted that he had suffered a serious addiction to alcohol in the past. Amazingly, it never showed on film. Everything Depp touches seems to turn to gold. You may have seen Johnny in such films as Edward Scissorhands, a whole bunch of other awesome movies, and the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Pretty cool films. Next up on this list is Mickey Mantle. And if you at one time owned a Mickey Mantle baseball card but threw it away because your mom said this baseball card collection was a waste of time, well, yeah, that's a good reason to drink, but it's not worth it. It's just a baseball card. Mickey Mantle was the most celebrated Yankee of all time. Mickey Mantle was addicted to alcohol and played almost every game either drunk or hungover. Holy cow. This is an incredible feat considering how talented he was on the field. It's almost mind-blowing to think how good he may have been if he wasn't drinking the whole time. He played ball from 51 to 68. During his 18 years with the Yankees, he played with greats such as Roger Maris, Joe DiMaggio, and Yogi Berra. Mr. Mandel died in 95 as a result of health problems brought on by drinking. His liver was corrupted and damaged by cirrhosis. He did get a liver transplant in July of 1995 after being on the liver transplant list for just one day. That's strange. The surgery caused some controversy because he felt that he got some preferential treatment due to his celebrity status. But the surgery didn't really work and he died a month later in August 1995. Mantle has been a member of the National Baseball Hall of Fame since 1974. Next up would be the pale rapper Eminem. Eminem had a history of alcoholism and drug addiction. In 2007, it was estimated he was taking 30 or more Valium and Vicodin pills per day and drinking. My Jesus. You may not know this, but Eminem formed an unlikely relationship with Elton John, despite the fact that a lot of his rap poetry is kind of anti-gay, but that's okay. That's in his past. And Elton John, the writer of one of my favorite songs, I Want Love, helped Eminem get sober. Most people remember Eminem for the film that he starred in called 8 Mile. Oh, and he actually won an Academy Award in that movie. And when I went into that movie, the bar was set pretty low. But the movie actually ended up being awesome. Next up on the list is Anthony Hopkins. No more fava beans and a nice Chianti for Anthony Hopkins. After waking up in another state and not knowing how he got there, Anthony Hopkins decided to go to a 12-step meeting. Impressively, Anthony has stayed sober ever since. The drinking addiction started when he was a young actor working in the UK. Anthony claims he never felt at home on stage, but greatly admired the work of his mentor, Sir Lawrence Olivier. In 1975, something within himself told him to stop drinking, and he never looked back. Wait a second, Anthony basically told himself to stop drinking? Hmm, well played, Anthony, well played. I did see you kill a full-grown grizzly bear in the movie The Edge, so you, my friend, may be capable of just that. Next up on this list is Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter. 
Daniel landed this role when he was only 11 years old, and it likely put a staggering amount of pressure on him for the duration of his teenage and young adult years, and probably for the rest of your life. Having to deal with worldwide fame at such a young age, he eventually led Ratcliffe to become dependent on alcohol. Another reason for his dependence on alcohol was in 2008, he was diagnosed with a neurological coordination disorder that made it difficult to carry out regular day-to-day tasks. Although Radcliffe says he never drank on the set of a Harry Potter movie, he does admit that he showed up a couple times, well, many times drunk. After recognizing that drinking had become a problem and caused him to turn into a social recluse at age 20, that would be the isolation that alcohol was very good at doing, Radcliffe became sober in 2010. So now let's hear from Lowe. Lowe, how are you? I'm good, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, Lowe. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Paul, I've been sober about seven and a half months now. Boom. Congratulations. Um, I, thank you. Yeah. And Lo, let's let's learn a little bit more about you. Maybe tell us where you're from, what you do for a living, are you married, how old are you, and what do you like to do for fun? I'm originally from northern Minnesota. I've been living out in Bozeman off and on the last 10 years. I have kind of a bad habit of this is my fourth time moving back to Bozeman in a decade. And so <laughs> it's tough to um, leave. Yeah. So it's, it's something keeps drawing me back. And my sponsor always said, maybe it was a place that I was supposed to get sober at. So it's been a good place to keep coming back to and to really live my life. I'm 32. I am not married, but I've been dating a guy for about a year and a half. And I am a massage therapist here in town. Nice. And what do you like to do for fun? What do I like to do for fun? Oh, there's many things. I'm definitely relearning and rediscovering myself. I like to run. I like to hike. I like to be a dog. I really enjoy coffee and dinner with friends. I really enjoy going to the theater I for plays or for movies. And I'm rediscovering my art world, too. I used to paint and draw a lot, and I'm trying to get back into that as well. Wow. Adios, alcohol. Welcome back, hobbies and passions. That's got to feel pretty cool, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, I used to spend just a lot of my time working, drinking, trying to take care of myself and my dog. And now it's like there's so many more hours to the day. And so I don't have that drinking to fill that void that I used to. So I need to explore my creativity outlet with other hobbies to fill myself up. Otherwise, you're just kind of sleeping, eating, going through the day, whereas before that got all shut down with the alcohol. Yeah, I hear you. And let's talk about 7.5 months ago. What happened? What brought you to the decision to stop drinking? Seven and a half months ago, I I was able, I don't know, I think I finally surrendered enough where I was able to stop drinking because it was probably the winter of 2015 spring 2015 that I finally decided I needed to stop drinking, but it took me close to a year of still drinking, kind of getting introduced to AA, backing away from AA, getting reintroduced to it again, and finally deciding to have a sponsor and then having several relapses. That was my last one was 12-8, so my birthday is 12-9-15. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing the elevator dance there for a while where you're like in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And then finally right. you surrendered on twelve nine. You just totally gave up. You're like, okay, yeah. I'm getting my ass kicked enough times. I'm not going to get back up. And surprisingly enough, that is when the rubber hits the road. And did you notice that 
you know, surprised because I was completely flabbergasted. I was like, look, I, none of my ideas are working. I am done. I'm at the lowest point in my life. All of a sudden this wave of hope just arrived. Did you experience something similar on 12, nine? Yeah. Cause the previous day I had wanted to drink and I had spent up to three or four hours on the phone calling people and just talking, trying to get rid of my obsession of wanting to drink. And the next day it had returned and I told myself I would try to call my sponsor and if she didn't answer, I was going to drink and tell myself I was a normal person. She didn't answer and then I did drink and of course nothing tragic happened, but it was enough where the shame, the guilt, the wanting to commit suicide the next day and I was just ready to be done with it. So I'm happy that I haven't had to relive that again. And talk to me more about the shame and the guilt. Was that part of a driving factor of, of why you got sober? Or, you know, I mean, two days yeah, two days before that, you said you called your sponsor. But talk to me, how did it feel? What were the feelings like that finally brought you to the point and said, look, I'm done? I think it was the fact that I had no control over stopping drinking. I just, the shame and the guilt that I would have the next morning was so intense that I could, all I could think about was wanting to commit suicide every single day that I woke up. My emotional hangovers were so heavy, more than my physical ones. And yet that wasn't enough to stop me from not drinking. The morning I would wake up, I would take a sheet of paper and write out everything I felt, what I experienced, what I did the night before, and post that next to my bed. So when I would wake up with this emotional hangover of death, I could read it and make myself not want to drink that day or the day afterwards. And that just never helped. And so I finally think I was defeated enough where I finally surrendered. And that's where my last drink was on 12-8. That sounds like a pretty brilliant plan. You know, I've heard a lot of plans. That's one of the questions that I ask. In fact, I'm probably going to ask you that question next. You know, plans saying I'm not drinking 4 or 5 p.m., but that's another plan. It's like, okay, I'm going to build myself up via pen and paper. So when I do wake up emotionally feeling completely broken, I'm going to read something handwritten to myself to pump me up. We're not going to drink, but if I do, that's fine. I'll got to have another handwritten personal pump up note to myself. But kind of like you said, those plans also don't work. And tell me, did you ever try any conventional plans? Like I'm not drinking you know, on a weekday, I'm only drinking on the weekend, stuff like that? I don't really recall doing that. I know sometimes I would wake up and if I felt shitty enough, I didn't want to drink that afternoon. But sometimes I would get a bottle of wine after work and have just a couple glasses. So my one other plan that I remember my psychiatrist told me, she said, why don't you try only X amount of drinks per week and keep a calendar of how many drinks you have each day, and then you can kind of regulate X number of drinks. So she had picked, I don't know, like it was like the number nine or something. So I told myself, oh, I would have that three days a week where I could have three drinks. Like, that's easy peasy. Who wouldn't be able to do that and still enjoy themselves? Well, mine would usually end by Monday or Tuesday between two days, and then um, <laughs> that yeah. shame and guilt would fill up again. And I would still have, what, Wednesday through Sunday where I needed to mark up what I drank. And so I would tally up my drinks at the end of each week. And I did this for like three or four months. And I, I never I never could make it. So that was probably my one way of trying to control my drinking. That just never worked. 
low, I had almost the exact same plan in place. It was a calendar on my door when I was in grad school in Seattle in 2009. And I was only going to drink three nights a week, kind of just like you said, three nights a week or three drinks per night, but I was allowed three nights per week. I didn't really have the plan in place of like how much per night. What I found out it's like, I was actually true to my plan for about six months, but the three nights that I was drinking, it was just like, you know, 40, 50, maybe 400 drinks a night. Obviously not that much, but you're right. Like my, my calendar would start on a Monday. And so it'd be like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, check like, damn it. How did this happen? And, you know, and then I, and then I'd make it to like, you know, the next Monday, but then I'd be like, okay, I'm going to go Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'd compile like in like a whole month thing. And then I'd take like 13 days off or 12 days off. Yeah. That was exhausting and it didn't work. Right. Right. Just one more thing that we're trying to control, trying to record and another plan to make you feel defeated. Yeah. Absolutely. And defeated is how I felt. And then the ironic part is when you got, when I was so defeated, I totally gave up ready to just be completely eliminated from being, that's when the wave of hope comes in and which is crazy. So talk to me about what it was like for you when you first quit drinking, how did you do it 7.5 months ago? I would say I finally got to a point where I was serious about the program. I think I was testing myself several times with my relapses and I would always have an excuse for why I drank them and my sponsor finally said maybe you're just relapsing because you're an alcoholic and so I think it took me several months to believe that I was an alcoholic because I didn't lose anything I didn't have any punishments it was it was all internal turmoil for me or my consequences so I think Part of me finally got to this part where I was, it's time to take the program seriously. I've been in it since probably end of July of last year. And so end of July through what, late fall, early winter, I was just kind of dabbling with it. Sure. And and Lo did... Your sponsor wrapped that statement up in a nice, tidy bow type package where they were like, hey, you know, I've done a lot of extensive research and testing and I've taken a lot of notes on you when we chat. And I think these relapses might mean you're an alcoholic <laughs> or were they, was your sponsor just like, look, Lo, you're, you're, real, you're an alcoholic, like, like just, just accept it. I mean, and how well, you said it took you like six or eight months before you finally realized you were or accepted it. What was that like? Yeah, she finally just kind of told me because I think I would doubt it all the time. And every time I went to meetings, I would talk to people about, well, I feel like I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not quite sure. And people are like, well, if you're concerned enough about your drinking and you're at an AA meeting, usually that's <laughs> enough to tell you that yeah, yeah, like you're... For them listening to that, they just want to be like, okay, I'm going to slap you. Then I'm also going to slap you on the backhand coming back. You're an alcoholic. Right, right. And maybe that was part of my alcoholism, trying to fight me and saying that I'm not and trying to avoid dealing with this as well. Totally, totally. Because, and I, I can, yeah. I can dance that dance. I'm really good at it. You would, per, mm-hmm. you would think I'm a professional at that dance. Cause I did it for so long. I was in the rooms, out of the rooms, in the rooms, out of the rooms. I would tiptoe around. I'd come in silently, sit in the back, sit in the front, sit in the back, sit in the front, fully engage, fully disengage. And right. after my first meeting ever, I drew the conclusion that I was not an alcoholic and I drank three days later after being sober for almost two and a half years. Yeah, I've done the dance and I fully respect it, but it is kind of comfortable to finally 
you know, and I don't want to use the label and I'm kind of breaking up with the word alcoholic, but it is comfortable when you're like, okay, shit, I'm an alcoholic. Who cares? Now what? That's kind of nice when you get there. Yeah, it is. It is a good fact to face. And it's just part of, you know, I don't want to say it's part of, it is part of my identity in a way. It's something I have to face and deal with. I agree a hundred percent with that where I'm an alcoholic. I'm a non-drinking alcoholic. And let's simplify that even more. I don't drink. That does somewhat define my character. It defines who I am. But the overall, it doesn't define me. Like I, the couple podcasts ago, there, there's something with any other disease or any other condition. It's like, yeah, my Aunt Teresa has cancer, but she loves to knit and she makes these great baskets you know, with, with her arts and crafts classes. But with an alcoholic, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, my Aunt Teresa, the alcoholic, she, it just stops. It's like her defining moment. But with me, yeah, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but Paul also likes to hang out with the standard poodle Ben, likes to hike, likes to play arcade games, plays flag football, all kinds of the other, other things. I, I, I agree with what you just said, Lo, is it doesn't define me, but it is becoming one of my most crowning, proudest moments and achievements in my life because, Lo, this stuff, it's not easy. It's not easy getting sober. No, it's not. It's super hard. It's probably the toughest thing I've ever done. And I haven't had the experience of being on a pink cloud. And for seven and a half months, I've struggled. I, I don't, just like they say, I don't regret the past. I don't want to shut the door on it. And I don't have a desire to drink again. But I've really been put through the test of trying to find out who I am, surrendering every more, learning what a higher power means. And for you, what does that mean? Trying to, have, to me... Having a higher power, I think the biggest thing I realized yesterday even is having something that's bigger than me that I don't have to control my life. I have something else to rely on, but not just relying on it because I've been trying to rely on it, but then I still have troubles getting rid of like my anxiety, my fears. And I, I think the biggest component I've been missing is I have to learn how to trust it as well. I have an idea of what my higher power is. I'm good at doing my prayers, my meditation, trying to let go. But I think learning to trust it is where my next step is. Lo, I really like what you said there about your definition for higher power. And listeners, if you think you have to have a higher power in like the religious standpoint to get sober, throw that idea out the window right now. Because Lo, your definition of your higher power is really just something bigger than me. And, and for me, a, right. that's a pine tree for me. A pine tree, some of them are redwoods, are like 150 feet high. And it never fails. If I'm in the wilderness and I hear the wind blowing within the pine trees, some sort of power greater than myself, it just arrives. And it's my conduit. I can be there and I can be present and I can be transparent with things and everything just becomes clear. But I like how you said you rely on it. You can trust it because again, we learn that we cannot control the alcohol and you know, that's, we have to put that in the power that's greater than ourselves. But I love how you said, you know what, this HP, this HP, this higher power, it can also take care of my depression, my anxiety and all that stuff. And you just trust it. And how does that feel when you finally just give up, you know, you give up the concern and worrying and give your problems to your higher power. How does that feel? It feels I can get some relief because, there, I mean, there's still days where, um, just even yesterday and the day before, were some of the worst couple of days of my life in the last month. And it's because I wasn't relying on my higher power, I don't think. And I think the biggest thing is knowing that I have relief from my mind 
is when is what my higher power can give me. Lo, something that I struggled with tremendously is anxiety. That was pretty mm-hmm. much the core impetus of why I got sober was I was in a downward spiral. I couldn't stand being blasted with the anxiety, and so I drank, and immediately the anxiety would go away. However, when I sobered up, I found the anxiety would come back twofold, and thus creates exactly. the downward spiral. And it literally was like three weeks ago, and sometimes you don't notice something's gone until you like consciously think about it. Um, and you feel that feeling again. I was hiking with my dog and it was kind of dusk at night and, um, my dog just stopped in the middle of the tracks. And, and this is like grizzly bear country up in Montana and he wouldn't budge forward. And I'm looking, I mean, he sees something, um, and I have no idea what it was. Oh, no. Yeah. And, but like, I just felt this feeling it was anxiety and like I was on the trail and I was, I was kind of started smiling as whoa, like I haven't felt this anxiety feeling in like six months. And that's a healthy anxiety feeling if there's like a grizzly bear mountain lion. Yeah, your body, yeah. it's a natural response. But I was smiling on the trail. I'd be like, all right, bed, let's let's go back. Let's, you know, let's not further investigate. And I was like, wow, I have not experienced anxiety in like six months, four months. But there's the natural Incredible. anxiety. Yeah. I mean, so listen Yeah, the natural high anxiety, that's like the good, not not the mind anxiety that we struggle with. Totally. That's lucky that you felt <laughs> the grizzly bear anxiety if it was that. Yeah, it, it probably was a monarch butterfly just flying to say hi. I don't know, but uh, it, it was. I laughed. I was like, man, I'm so glad I am reprieved of those feelings until I need to feel those feelings, which would be you know the fight or flight symptoms when you know butterfly, a squirrel, or a bear shows up. Um, yeah. And actually low walk me through a day in your recovery. How do you do it? I usually get up. I'm not a huge morning person, but I've been able to start getting up about several days a week and go for a run with a great friend of mine, which really helps the anxiety. And then I come back and I get my coffee and say, I do my prayers, my meditation, kind of spend a few quiet moments to myself. And then start to get ready for the day and I I try to stay conscious of having contact with, with my higher power throughout the day and checking in and usually I try to make sure that I'm in contact with people from the program as well whether it's texting or giving a quick phone call whether I'm struggling or not I just realize that those relationships that I've developed is just a huge support system for me. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And it sounds like you're doing all the right things. You're plugged in, you're meeting with people in the program. And and this is Alcoholics Anonymous, correct? Is that what we're referring to, a 12-step program? Yes, it is. Now, do you have a sponsor? I do have a sponsor. I've had a sponsor since since late last summer. The first time I met my sponsor, it's kind of a funny story. When last spring 2015, when I was in the destruction of my drinking, my therapist she wanted me, she didn't say it was an AA program, but she goes, I have somebody I want you to meet. She has similar interests to you. And so I was like, oh, that's great. I think this woman, I would love to have another friend. This woman probably likes yoga and running and doing artwork or whatever. And it turns out this woman has just a very similar story to mine in AA and has a lot of the same thinking and secondary actions as well 
for coping coping mechanisms is what mm-hmm. I mean. And so I was quite surprised. And so this woman actually became my sponsor. But the first time she I asked her to be my sponsor, I didn't realize what it entailed. So she wanted me to meet with her weekly and she wanted me to go to four meetings a week and I I had to turn it down because at that point I was still working full time and involved with a lot of other activities I was trying to use to help with my drinking, like running or going to yoga. I was seeing the therapist weekly. So I was like, I don't have time for all that. But then when I realized I couldn't handle work anymore, I quit my job and I I was lucky enough to not have to work last summer. So I re reached out to her and asked her to be my sponsor again. So <laughs> that is fantastic. And it sounds like how you first met your sponsor was you got duped. So it was like, Hey, you know, let's go get ice cream at Dairy Queen and uh, meet this person. And it ended up being your future sponsor. I, I dupe a lot of people these days. I say, Hey, let's go see this straight out of Compton movie. And, and, uh, you're like, Oh, it's sold out, but, uh, we can go to an A meeting instead. Well, you know, I'm driving. Yeah. So I guess you don't really have a choice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. And and Lo, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Lo, number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? My worst memory from drinking was probably last summer when I drank too much, wasn't planning on even drinking that evening, and had a suicide attempt. Yikes. Next question, what is your favorite Flo Rider song? Ooh, that's a good one. I don't know. I don't, I'm not very good at titles with music, but if I heard it, I would be able to pick it out. <laughs> okay, I was just, but that's a great band. Yep. I would, I'm guess I was assuming you were going to say low just because your name <laughs> low. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's not on the list of questions that you got. I just threw it in there. Um, and who's your favorite, uh, all state, uh, all state insurance commercial rep. No, uh, pr- never mind. That answers right. low. flow, not low. That's flow. Flow. Okay. That's slow. Yeah. <laughs> Bad question on the interviewer part. We'll go to number two. Low. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you really couldn't control your drinking? Probably the same night that I had the suicide attempt. I was just, I hadn't even drank that much and my actions just were going down a road that I didn't think I was really thinking about. And that's when I was like, oh no, this is not good. And that was probably the same the night of the suicide attempt man and lo what's your plan in sobriety moving forward probably as i mentioned earlier is keeping up with the friendships i establish to me that's really important con- using my network that i've developed so continue going to aa meetings um continue listening to the recovery elevator podcast and just reaching out to people awesome next question what's your favorite resource in recovery lo I would say my AA program and podcast. I love the podcast and I love the community surrounding 12-step programs. Next question in regards to sobriety low, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think some of the best advice I have ever received, especially since I haven't received, I haven't experienced that pink cloud. My sponsor said the goal is not to feel better about life. It's just to stay sober. So that's one thing I have to remember. I think sometimes my high expectations get me into trouble, meaning it's easy to get upset about it when it's like, no, I'm still staying sober, and that's important. Love it. Next question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? 
it's worth all the hard work and it will pay off. I'm still waiting for mine to do that, but everyone tells me to don't quit before the miracle happens. Absolutely. It's a blind leap of faith. And I actually have another question. Tell me about the pink cloud that has not shown up yet. I think for me, as you said, you struggled with anxiety. I have struggled with it quite a bit myself too. I remember this is why I drank is to get rid of that mind chatter, the seven hamster wheels that are racing around on those wheels inside my head. I didn't realize how bad it was for me until I stopped drinking because then I, the first memory I have of my anxiety, I was in like first or second grade and I would worry about homework that hadn't even been assigned yet that would probably come out the next day. And so that's just what I still face as those same anxiety thoughts of just the what if and how can this be and worrying about every little thing. And so I have my, my glimmers of hope are occurring and I have to grasp onto those as my dear friend told me. She said, hold on to all those little uh, glimmers of hope and then that can start to build up to like a bigger one for me. It's the blind leap of faith. And I love it how that was your parting piece of guidance that it's going to pay off in the end. And I still have not seen the total dividends yet of my choice to quit drinking. It continues Mm -hmm. to pay off dividends and it's amazing. Lo, thank you so much for joining us. Greatly appreciated. Thank you. And there's another woman that should be on that list. That would be a thoughtful and caring woman, Mrs. Doubtfire. Some of you might know her as Robin Williams. Being addicted to alcohol and dependent on alcohol, there's not always a happy ending with it. But hey, I'm one of the lucky ones. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're also one of the lucky ones. You're trying to move forward. You're trying to achieve a better life. Maybe your pain points are strong enough that it's time to make a change. You're actively researching. You're wanting to find a different way of thinking, acting, and believing. Well, Recovery Elevator, we can do just that. Because we took the elevator down, we got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 